How's everybody doing? Good. Is anybody as hot as I am? <laughs> I guess I'm working hard. If anybody else gets hot, just pop open some windows. <clears throat> well, I'm really excited this morning. Uh, Easter gives us an, a wonderful opportunity to consider one of the most important teachings of the Christian faith. Uh, there are some teachings where uh, Christians disagree, and we learn to agree to disagree on different teachings. Um, you know, some churches choose to have wooden benches in their sanctuary. And that, that's what they prefer. They think that's important and good. Uh, we prefer padded blue chairs in our <laughs> sanctuary. And you say, what's the big deal? Either way, it's not a big deal, right? But there's other teachings in the Bible that uh, if, if the Bible had a beating heart, that you would put your finger on that and say, that is the very heart of Scripture, very center of what the Bible teaches. And that is, my friends, Easter. Uh, Good Friday, we had a wonderful celebration on Good Friday. Uh, there were tears shed. There was just, it was awesome. Uh, and we remembered the sufferings of our Lord. Uh, there is no crown without the cross. There is no glory without the suffering that comes before. And that's true for us too, isn't it? You know, we don't, we don't get to the kingdom of God without suffering. But this morning, we, uh, we remember three days later from that event. And we remember what occurred. And upon this event, everything hinges. Uh, whether it makes sense to be a Christian, or whether Christianity is just a myth, or just a popular belief system for people to feel better. Uh, all depends on whether the resurrection really happened. If the resurrection did not really happen, we should go home. But I'm not going home because it happened. It's true. And we're going to be looking at what that means for us today. So before we get into God's word, let's pray. Father, this morning we are so, so thankful that just as the sun rises each morning, so also the hope rises in our hearts as we consider your resurrection. Because you live, Jesus, we can face tomorrow. We know there is hope, and we praise you for that. Lord, as we come before Scripture, before your holy word, this morning we ask that you would give us hearts that would bow down before you. Your word is truth. It's not just a truth. It is the living truth. And so, Father, we ask that you'd open our eyes, humble us in our hearts, help us to tremble before the beauty of your word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Feel free, if you have a Bible, to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. Um, this whole chapter is about the resurrection. And uh, we're not going to be able to make our way through the whole chapter. It's too much. But we are going to look at some of the key passages here. The, uh, the Bible will also be on the screen up here. 
uh, so that you can follow along. If you did not bring a Bible today, it will be there. Uh, and also in your bulletin, you'll find that there is a sermon outline um, that uh, hopefully there's pens or pencils in front of you in the chairs that if you'd like to follow along and just fill in the blanks, that's a great way to help us learn better. Uh, what do they say? If you just hear something, you, return, you retain so much of that. But if you hear it and see it, then you retain that much more. And if you touch it, and you get the picture. <laughs> so it, it's good to fill in the blanks. I'd encourage you to do that. The first thing that we see in this passage is that Paul wants us to put first things first. And uh, what he means by that is that there is the priority of the gospel. Now, the gospel is one of those words that we could call, um, there's a language that you might have heard of. It's not exactly English or Spanish, but it's called churchianity or churchish. And that's where you have all the big church words. And if you're not in church all the time, you have no clue what those words mean. So today we're going to try to avoid churchish, okay? What is the gospel? What's another way to say gospel? The good news, yes. The good news. Um, I'm tempted to say the best news that has ever been shared in the history of the universe. Uh, the good news. Now this is the Apostle Paul one who had personally seen the resurrected Christ writing. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. What does gospel mean? Good. Which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here is the gospel in a nutshell. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, when it uses the word scriptures in this context, it is primarily talking about the Old Testament scriptures. These events of Jesus dying, being buried, being risen again, are written about before he ever came. In this thing that uh, Christians call the Old Testament. Um, and here in the New Testament, we read about the fulfillment of those prophecies that came true. So, the priority of the good news. <clears throat> what does this mean for us, that the good news is the first importance to Paul? What should it mean to you and me? It means that if you come here today and you're... Uh, you're casually acquainted with church. Maybe you've been to church before. Uh, or maybe you're regular to church. It means that more than anything else this morning, God wants you to know that Jesus Christ died for your sins. That implies that we're sinners, doesn't it? 
uh, he wouldn't have died if we didn't have sin. But what is sin? We have to avoid churchy words, right? What is sin? Give me a, a sample definition. Lying? Cheating? Stealing? Murder? No, let me not say that. Anything short of perfection toward God. So I like to measure myself by the sins of uh, commission uh, because I have never murdered anybody. Check me out. You know, I, I usually don't lie. I don't try to lie. I have never, ever committed adultery. Okay, let's turn the tables a little bit and we'll talk about the sins of omission. The sins that we uh, commit by not doing something we should do. Okay, what's the greatest commandment in the Bible? Love, <laughs> love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. That means every second of every day that we give God complete say in everything we do and think. We love him with all of our heart. We tell other people about him as often as we can. His kindness shines through us. We don't get angry for stupid things. We're hardworking. We're not lazy. We're loving God with all of our hearts. Okay. Those of you who are not guilty, raise your hands. Okay, that means that you and I are sinners. We are guilty before God. And so, that is uh, the, the bad news. If you have cancer, let me ask you this. If you had cancer, would you want to know? I think most of you would say that you would want to know. You would say that's the first step toward going to the hospital and getting fixed. Um, cancer is kind of a bad analogy because sometimes it's not fixable. But I would want to know if I am sick. I would want to know if I am ill or if I'm going to die because I'm going to run to the hospital and ask for help. So the bad news is that you and I are guilty before God. We are sinners. The good news is what? Christ died for sinners. There is a hospital. There is a place to get better. There's a place to find forgiveness and peace and healing. And that is Christ. Christ is risen. And because of that we can find forgiveness of sins. If you come here this morning and you're not sure what Christianity is all about or you've only read bits and parts of this book and you haven't read the whole thing, this, this is it. Do you understand that you're a sinner whom Christ died for as a free gift of love? Have you accepted that free gift that Jesus holds out to you? 
And has it absolutely rocked your world? Are you a changed person? The thing is that I need to remember is if I'm not a changed person, then I don't yet get this. If your life is the same as it was before, you do not get this. But if your life has been changed like crazy by this, you get it. Christ died for you. Okay, so that's the priority of the gospel. Um, For Christians, that means that we don't minor on, we don't major on the minors. So I am not uh, ever, to my knowledge, going to preach a sermon in here about the need to have wood pews. I'm not ever going to preach a sermon about needing to have blue padded chairs. I'm not going to preach about a lot of things that are very, very minor. We got to preach this gospel all the time. This is central to what it means to be a Christian. So at the heart of what it means to be a good Christian, uh, not a good Christian, just a Christian, is good news. That means the heart of your whole life, Christian, is good news. And... uh, That's amazing. Okay, let's move on. What Paul also shows us in this passage is not just the priority of the gospel, the, uh, the importance of the gospel, but he also shows us why you and I should believe the gospel. Okay, we do not give our lives to things that we know are a hoax. You will not go to work on Monday morning if you don't believe they're going to give you a paycheck on Friday, right? Maybe if you just love your job, you know. But most of us would not. And I'm not going to live for something that I know is a fraud, something that's just a myth or a nice story for people to believe. I'm not interested in that. I only have one life to live. I do not desire to waste it, and I hope you don't either. So what we find in Paul this morning is that there's plenty of not Easter eggs, even though, you know, that kind of goes with the saying, but plenty of Easter evidence. Evidence. Okay, what am I talking about? First, we said that uh, Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and he was raised on the third day. And then it goes on to say this, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, that's who we think of as Peter. Then he appeared to the 12. The 12 who? What are disciples? That's a churchy word. Okay, followers of Christ. People who committed their life to Christ. He appeared to these men. Get this. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Okay, when we study the Bible, we need to remember that context is king, right? What do we mean by that? We mean that you don't take a Bible verse and rip it out to make it say what you want it to say. You have to read around it and understand it. Paul is not saying that today, in the year 2009, that most of these brothers are still alive, is he? He wrote this about 2,000 years ago. And he's saying at his time of writing, most of the people that had seen Christ 
after he died and was resurrected, were alive. So what this means is, at that time, there were about, let's say that most is 400 of the 500, okay? I'm not preaching that as gospel truth, by the way. Let's just pretend, okay? So there's 500 that saw most who are still alive. Let's say 400 were still alive at Paul's time, and you could have walked around the streets of Jerusalem and asked them what they saw. Now, Paul, if he has any brain at all, will not write this if those 400 people are going to say, you're ridiculous. That never happened. Paul could have taken you by the hand, introduced you to Peter, introduced you to Thomas, to all these different people back then, and said, tell them the story. Tell them what you saw. Okay, Uh, we were in this room, and all of a sudden Christ appeared to us, and he said, feel my hands and my side and my feet. See that it's really me. And, and I, I put my hands there, and I felt there was a hole still in his hand. But he was talking to me. This guy's been dead for a number of days, and he's talking to me, and he does not look dead. Jesus has laid out evidence before us. And uh, it's for you and I to accept Now, faith has to act upon intelligent evidence. It's not enough to say, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. You know, there's some good evidence. That's great. Go home. It means we put our trust in evidence. We put our trust in God. How many of you this morning, when you came in, tested your chair before you sat in it? No, I mean, raise your hand if you tested your chair first. What are you doing? That chair could have broken. You could have fallen flat through and hit the floor. You just trusted it? You exercised faith in your chair? Well, I don't see anybody fell down, so it's pretty, pretty good faith. I'm telling you that the parallel is that Christ is a strong chair. And, and you can sit there. You can rest there. There are strong reasons to believe. And um, I think it would have been amazing at that time to just walk around and speak with some of these 400 people who were still alive and ask them. So there's plenty of evidence. Actually, there's, um, I should mention that there's Really, really good books out there. If you are struggling with this issue, if you're struggling with doubts, I would encourage you to read, to use the brain that God gave you and study. Uh, I have doubted these things in my past. I have struggled big time with doubts. And uh, I have studied hard to learn what I believe. Uh, There's a new book that came out. I should have had a copy to show you, uh, but it's called The Reason for God. It's a white book with black letters by Tim Keller. Very well written. Um, there's some academic thought in there, but it's, it's, it's something that all of us in this room could digest. 
The Reason for God by Tim Keller. Or to go back a couple centuries, uh, you could read C.S. Lewis on uh, his book, Mere Christianity. Or an even smaller one that you can get at the Family Christian Store is called More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. Any of those books will help you think through this. But um, Anyway, I hope that this whets your appetite for knowing that there is good reason. Okay, well, Paul in his writing here in 1 Corinthians is not done yet. We, uh, we just got a big dose of his reason for why he believes. But here we get a little bit different kind of evidence. And it's uh, the evidence of a man whose life has been radically changed. When I say radically changed, about as big of a change as you could possibly have. Paul uh, was also known as Saul. And before Paul was a Christian, Paul was a Christian killer. He was a Jew. And he believed that these Christian people were badly misrepresenting God. And he was doing his best to put them out of existence. Let's read his story. First of all, in the context, he's saying that Christ also appeared to me. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Churchy word alarm. <laughs> persecuted. What does that churchy word mean? What's that? Torment. Okay. Yep. Inflict harm. Uh, pressure. Be against. Throw them in prison, perhaps. Kill them. Persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God... I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, that is, the apostles. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I, Paul, or it was they, the other apostles, so we preach, this is what we preach, and so you have believed. Okay? You can either uh, go out and ask those 400 people uh, about the resurrection of Christ or consider my life, says Paul. I was actively hating and killing Christians. And I will tell you that my story, says Paul, is when I was walking along this road on the way to Damascus, a bright light shone on the road. And Jesus himself after he was crucified, came and spoke some strong words to me. And he said, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? And from that encounter, my life has been absolutely changed. So that Paul, the Christian killer, became the one who preached harder than any of the other apostles. 
how do you take somebody who hates Christians and hates Christ to become the foremost proclaimer of Christian teachings? How do you take somebody who hates Christianity to being the one who is in the front of the line for Christ? Grace. Becoming convinced of the truth and being changed in your heart. So, we have a Christian killer who is now living for Christ in a very radical way. I don't think Paul was any dumber than me. I think Paul was probably smarter than me. And I really doubt that Paul would have given his life to something he knew was a hoax. Do you? Would you live for something you know is a lie? Give me a break. No way. And neither would Paul. Well, in this passage, we, um, we would maybe use the word heresy, but that's kind of a churchy word uh, for meaning screwy teaching, teaching that is goofed up and twisted, and really, if people believe that kind of teaching, it's, it's hurtful. Um, you know, if, if you grew up in Orchard View High School and one of your teachers told you that when you are driving down the road and you see a red uh, sign at the road, and um, when you see that red sign, that means you should push down your accelerator and go faster. No. That teacher's gone. Right? It better be gone. Better be fired. Um, well, obviously, but... There are teachings that exist in people's minds that can hurt us as well. Uh, spiritual teachings, where when we see the red sign, we should realize it's a stop sign, and we should stop. Or if it's green, we should go. And so here we're going to look at uh, a, a false teaching that we need to know about. Okay, Paul is talking to these Christians in Corinth. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... And he was, right? Okay, that's the assumption. He was. How can some of you, Corinthians, say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Some of the people in that church were saying, you don't get raised from the dead. It doesn't happen. You die, and you're dead. And that's where you're staying. Uh, you will not get a new body. You're just, if anything, you'll just be a spirit thing floating around. So Paul wars against this. He says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Right? Do you see his reasoning? If there is no such thing as resurrection from the dead, then Christ obviously has not risen from the dead. Okay? What would that mean to us? The meaning of the resurrection, your faith is well pleased, placed. Sorry. He goes on, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We said this at the outset. What does this mean, uh, the word vain? Okay, yeah, it, it's good for nothing. It's worthless. It's, it's not worth your time. So, 
let's be assured today that believing and living the Christian life, if Christ has not been raised, is worthless. It might make you feel good for a few years, right? It'll be your crutch during life, but ultimately it will be worthless. That's what Paul's saying. But what does Paul believe? Paul believes that Christ has been raised. What do the Corinthians believe? They even believe that Christ has been raised. So, so Paul's trying to get them to be consistent in their beliefs. And he's saying, then you also, my friends, will be raised from the dead. If Christ does not come back um, in the next five years, ten years, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years, many of us in this room will die. Is that true? Statistically? Okay. The thing that we need to remember is that though our bodies will die and our bodies will corrupt, I don't even like to picture that, it's gross, but our bodies will decay and fall apart, the fact is, is there will be a day when those same bodies are resurrected out of the grave and put back together just the way God wants them to be. Uh, people struggle with, should I, should I be buried the traditional way or should I be cremated? That's a good question, and I don't have the answers this morning, but I'll tell you, either way, God has the ability to put those atoms back together. And the bodies will come back together and they will be raised up. So the last word is not a decaying, rotting body. The last word is God's victory. He is risen. We will be risen. <laughs> How do we say that? <laughs> we, <laughs> we will be risen indeed because He is. Because He is, we will be. And um, the question of where we will spend eternity in our resurrection bodies is a different question. We will all be raised, believer and unbeliever. And with our bodies, we will stand before God. And we will either say, God, can I come in because I tried to live a good life? Or we will say, God, I know I'm not worthy to come in. I know I cannot come into heaven. But Christ paid for my sins, and I trust him, and I trust your grace, and I know you're going to let me in. And he says, yep, come on in. So we don't trust ourselves. We don't trust our good lives. We trust him. What this means oops, is that for Christians, your faith is well-placed. There will be a resurrection, Christian, and it will all be worth it. All the pain, all the suffering will be worth it. It's going to be. And your, your, your faith is not in vain. Another meaning of the resurrection is that Pastor Tom is not a liar. 
Okay, well, that's not exactly what the Bible says, but almost. Okay, let me show you. <clears throat> Paul, uh, again, assuming that the resurrection didn't happen, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. So the question comes down to, for one thing, am I deliberately misrepresenting God every Sunday from this pulpit? Or do I tell you the truth? I think, as well as I know how to think, that I am telling the truth about this matter. I try to tell the truth. And uh, so I just find it very good that uh, I agree with Paul and that I'm not misrepresenting God and that I'm speaking the truth and that I'm not lying about this. And hopefully you find that to be a relief as well. Um, as much as I am convinced, I am telling the truth before God. The meaning of the resurrection again. Christ's death took away our sins. We've spoken about this briefly at the beginning. Look at this. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. We've already decided we're sinners, right? We're guilty. We deserve punishment from God. You take the resurrection away and what you are left with is, hey, <laughs> we're still sinners. We're still guilty. And there's no hospital. There's nowhere to get help. There is no way to get right with God. But he is risen. And because he is risen, your sins, if you are a believer, are forgiven. It's not futile. It's true. And it's good. It is good to be a Christian. Another meaning of the resurrection, and this is going to get personal for some of you. Paul says that believers who have died are still alive. Is that a contradiction? No. Let me just explain what I mean. Well, let's let Paul explain what he means. <laughs> and again, he's working from the opposite side, right? Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished if there is no resurrection. Raise your hand with me if you have had a loved one die who believed in the Christian faith. Okay. If Christ has not risen from the dead, all of those loved ones are still... They've perished. They're, they're not in glory. There's no hope. There's nothing for them. 
but if Christ has risen, let's turn this upside down. If Christ has risen, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have, they have hope. They're going to get a new body. And currently, in the meantime, they're living with Christ in glory. Which thought do you prefer? And it's not just what we prefer, it's what's true. But it is also what we prefer. (laughs) I greatly prefer this, and I'm not going to reject the resurrection unless it's false. It's not false, it's true. And it's good news. I know I am looking forward to meeting a uh, man whom I have heard so much about in these past two and about a half year, two and a half years, um, Dave Pruitt's dad. I never met him. He was gone before I came. But how many stories have I heard about him? (laughs) No? I'm guessing like 20. I don't know. But I'm looking forward to talking with him. And he and I are in the same family. And so ultimately, we're going to be at the same table in glory. And we're going to have, oh, an infinite number of years to catch up and to get to know each other. That is the hope of a Christian. The hope of a Christian is that all of God's true children will be together forever. It's good. The last point that Paul makes is this. Christians are not to be pitied. What does he mean by that? If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, let's take that out of churchy language and put it into contemporary language. If in this life you have had Christ as a crutch, you've had him you know, under your armpits and you're walking with these crutches and they make you feel better, They give you some hope in this life. They give good feelings inside, and so that's why I go to church. Good feelings. But when I die, and when I go to find out what's on the other side, I find out that it's all hogwash. There is no Christ. There is no resurrection. Then we, of all people, Paul says, are to be most pitied. Why? Why? Well, I make choices every day of my life to avoid certain things that would be very pleasurable to me. There are some parties that might be really fun to go to for one night. There might be some relationships that'd be really fun to to dive into for a couple of days. There are many things I can think of that would be more fun than suffering as a Christian. Saying no to this sin, to fighting against my same stupid sins. I can think of lots of fun things to do. (laughs) But the fact is, is that I'm not to be pitied because this life is short. The next life is long, very, very long. And the way we live in this life will determine what happens in the next. So the Christian is choosing delayed gratification. 
That's definitely a churchy word or something. Uh, the Christian is choosing to put off pleasure until that day when the pleasure will be perfect forever. So, Christian, are you to be pitied? Is life hard? Yes. Is being a Christian hard? Yes. Are you to be pitied? You are to be envied. Because Christ is risen. He is risen. Amen. Now, what I'd like to do is pray. And I, I would suspect that there's two groups of people in here. Uh, you've come this morning, either A, because you already understand this and you love this with all your heart. Uh, that is a Christian. <laughs> you come here this morning because you know there's more to life than what you've been living, but you're just starting to understand this. You're just starting to trust Christ. And you haven't been living for him. You haven't been giving your life to God. You've been keeping it for yourself. This morning is the time to open our hands and to give our lives to God, the one who made you and me.